We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Sox Machine Live. I am Josh Nelson as we are streaming live on our YouTube page at youtube.com slash Sox Machine on Thursday night, September 13, 2023. And uh, this day, uh, not really. Uh, the Chicago White Sox just lost the season series against the Kansas City Royals uh, as the Royals visited Chicago one, two out of three. And uh, that is the third straight season that the Kansas City Royals have won the season series against the Chicago White Sox, which is all sorts of depressing. I'll be joined later in the show with Jim Margulis, the managing editor of SoxMachine.com, as we'll talk about what happened against Kansas City. Uh, Oscar Colas being sent down to Charlotte. We're going to talk a lot about that. And uh, Dave Wilder uh, speaks. What a what a crazy situation uh, that is. I can't believe The Athletic actually got uh, Wilder to speak. If you don't remember, and we'll talk more about this later in the show, he went to prison <laughs> for skimming bonuses of Latin America players and uh, – Pretty much wrecked whatever relationships the White Sox had down in the Dominican Republic and with a lot of Latin America just in general uh, with that skimming bonus scheme that landed him in prison. But yeah, the Chicago White Sox losing two out of three against the Kansas City Royals. And uh, who knows, maybe the Chicago White Sox will just continue to hire more people from Kansas City so they could figure out on how to beat the Kansas City Royals one of these days, or at least win a season series. Uh, but I think I bought enough time, and now I'm joined by Jim Margulis. Jim, welcome. Uh, they did it again. The Kansas City Royals, those darn Kansas City Royals, win another season series against the Chicago White Sox. What is the point of having Pedro Grafal manage the White Sox if they don't actually beat <laughs> the team he came from? Oh. <laughs> uh... I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I looked it up just to see, given the Royals' record, like it's possible. You know, how many teams could they have a winning record against? And against teams that they face multiple times, the White Sox are it. 
Yeah, and uh, Alec made this comment on our YouTube channel. channel. Uh, White Sox have had a really tough time beating the three Major League Baseball teams with worse records than them. And he, he makes a really good point because if you look at uh, Tankathon, uh, which you can go to tankathon.com, uh, MLB, you can you can see where the White Sox are in the 2024 MLB draft lottery right now. And uh, this was captured before the White Sox losing. So the White Sox are 56 and 90 with 16 games left to go. Uh, they have to go seven and nine to avoid 100 losses. I do not like their chances. But right now, if the season were to end today, the White Sox still have a better record than Colorado, Oakland, and Kansas City. So Kansas City, Oakland, and Colorado, again, a reminder of the MLB draft lottery. Those three teams would have tied for the best odds of getting the number one draft pick at 16.5%. The White Sox currently have the fourth worst record in Major League Baseball, and their odds of getting the first pick in the draft is at 13.25%, and the White Sox are a couple games ahead, I think technically is the term, uh, of Colorado in order to get into that top three. But I'm sure in these last 16 games, Jim, uh, from the effort we have seen as of late, they're going to try. The White Sox are going to try to get to that bottom three to enhance their chances of having the number one pick next year. They're going to give it what they got. Um, <laughs> it's a mix of you know veterans that are checked out, like Yasmani Grandal looks like he's basically more or less done. <laughs> um, and then you have like the bullpen, which is trying like you know a guy like lane ramsey a guy like sammy peralta they want to do well you know they they have every incentive to uh put together a nice last few weeks even if it doesn't lock in a job for next year at least you know, puts a positive impression in the minds of pedro Grafal and ethan katz if he's still around to you know, give them a head start and inside track and spring training so i mean they're trying their best but you know, bless their hearts they just don't really have enough and they weren't really lighting charlotte on fire they were doing okay which i guess is relatively on fire given how poorly most everybody pitches for the Charlotte Knights, but still like we're yeah. seeing like the effects of trading um, Lance Lynn and Lucas Giolito and Kendall Graveman and Joe Kelly, all, all the arms they lost, like finally are paying the price for that. And it's going to be a very long last, uh, what is it? 14 games, 16 so, games, 16. Yeah. <laughs> I wish it were 14. Pray for <laughs> rain. Let's not cheat ourselves. There's still 16 more games left to go in this season. Oh, man. Well, one of the things that was surprising earlier this week is that the Chicago White Sox demoted Oscar Colas to Charlotte. And that's eye-opening because it's September. Typically, you're promoting guys <laughs> from Charlotte mm -hmm. to Chicago, especially players like Oscar Colas. But... Not the case. Colas being sent down to Charlotte. And for Oscar Colas of the season, like I can't blame the White Sox. He's played 75 games in the majors this year. Only five home runs and 19 RBIs. According to Fancrafts, Oscar Colas is at negative 1.3 wins above replacement. So he is below replacement level. So he's probably best suited to be in AAA. In the majors this year, Colas hit just 216 with a 257 on base percentage, slugging 314 with a 52 weighted runs created plus, a walk percentage below 5%, and a strikeout rate at 27%. So all bad numbers across the board. 
And for the reasoning, manager Pedro Grafal said that Colas has to go down there and take care of those fundamentals. We talked a lot here about those fundamentals. We've worked a lot. We'll continue to work with them. However, we thought it was just a good time for him to go down there and just attack those things on the minor league side. End quote. Again, that's Pedro Grafal regarding Oscar Colas. Uh, Jim, what in the world is Grafal talking about? Because there's like barely any games left in AAA. Like what in the world is Colas actually going to work on? Let's just call it what it is. This is like discipline for either Colas's play on the field or just the way that Colas is approaching the game or all of the above. And mm-hmm. Pedro Grafal just cannot stand Oscar Colas. So they just send him to Charlotte. Yeah, it's a dog housing. I think it's fair to call it that. Um, there really is, you know, I guess Grafal could take a harder line. I guess I maybe support his uh, talking around it just because, you know, we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, how he only saves his harsh words for rookies or guys who don't have guaranteed contracts or guys who are pre-arb and can be optioned down. And whenever somebody can't be optioned or is around or, or the white Sox have made a financial commitment, it's just kid gloves. And um, we haven't even thought about issuing any kind of professional consequence for their poor player or poor efforts. So, like, you know, if he opened up double barrels on Grafal and uh, on Colas and just said, like, you know, well, let's see. He can't hit. He can't field. He doesn't run. Uh, he, you know, we're in September. He's still throwing to the wrong base. He still struggles to collect the ball in his mitt. What does he do well? Like, you'd call that bullying because, like, yeah, I mean, he doesn't save that kind of rhetoric for anybody else except for somebody who can be uh, shuffled down to Charlotte without any, you know, financial implications or, you know, I guess it really only reflects poorly on Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams and they're gone and maybe Chris mm-hmm. Getz, but uh, you know, Griffall is kissing up to Getz. So like that's, he's not going to do that, but like it is pretty much a dog housing. And when you look at the way Colossus has played, like I don't really have much sympathy for him just because like it's bad. Yeah, again, the season numbers have been awful. I I was optimistic before the season. I'm one of probably many idiots that literally put money on Oscar Colas to win the American League MVP, and he might – not MVP, I'm sorry, American League Rookie of the Year. That I couldn't even imagine those odds. <laughs> He might he might win least valuable player in the American League in 2023. I don't know how many players have that low of wins above replacement this year. I haven't checked, but it's pretty brutal. And he turns 25. He he turns 25 on September 17th. So Oscar Colas's birthday is in four days. So happy birthday! You're back at AAA uh, for the remaining of the season, and. That would that would be something if Grafal said that I would laugh. <laughs> it's just happy birthday to the ground. So just on Oscar Colas, real quick here, mm-hmm. if he is truly in the doghouse for Pedro Grafal, and I agree with you, Jim, that I think he is. How in the world does Oscar Colas get out of that doghouse and regain the confidence from Pedro Grafal? to man right field again. Like what does Coloss have to do to prove himself? Like doing one thing well. Like that's really what it comes down to. I mean, like I'm thinking like other, you know, maybe like the most prominent 
dog housing I can think of among outfielders is like Brian Anderson in 2006. Uh, the tension between like offense and defense, he couldn't hit, he could field really well. Uh, he didn't mesh well with the other veterans and Ozzie Guillen wasn't a big fan of him. And so he kept like throwing Rob McCoviak out there and like, McCoyak was terrible in center field. Like just, you know, couldn't break the right right way, never turned the right initial direction on balls hit over his head. Uh, Often, you know, screwed himself into the ground uh, trying to locate the ball. And, you know, I I think the defensive metrics were a lot more primitive at that time. And certainly like mainstream media and, you know, the, the questions to from reporters to the manager were a whole lot, you know, less detailed when it came to, uh, defensive metrics and just defense over offense and how it washes out. But just, you know, at least Anderson did one thing well. And over the next few years, he'd do that one thing well, and it would keep him around for a little bit of time. Like Colos just doesn't offer anything. And that's, I think what's most troubling is like watching him in Charlotte. I didn't see this kind of like poor defensive play. Um, and it just seems like it's a game speed thing or something to where like, you know, he, he struggles to collect the ball cleanly he takes really nervous routes that he wasn't nervous about in either right center uh, right or center in charlotte and like it does seem like a processing thing and so like on one hand i guess that's where i do feel a little bit of sympathy for coloss because like it doesn't seem like it's a a work ethic thing or he's not taking it seriously enough because like he has some quality reps in triple a and when it comes to his time in chicago like it's just it's not clicking and it seems like the game speed overwhelms him and, and like the fan, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the processing power isn't there and the fan starts going into overdrive trying to cool down the system. And just, he ends up like either locking up or, uh, throwing to the wrong base. And you can see like Elvis Andrews getting frustrated when, you know, he has to talk about who the right cutoff man is. And, uh, and then they you know, collide in the outfield because Colossus isn't calling for the ball that he's charging at. Like it's just, you know, I think the mistakes mount and when they start like jeopardizing the health of another teammate because, uh, you know, Colas wasn't calling for it, then, yeah, it's uh, I think there's only so much you can do. And, you know, I wonder if it's not so much maybe antipathy towards Colas as it is like maybe a message to the front office saying, like, I don't want this guy being plan A again. And, yeah that's a problem because the white Sox have so many (laughs) positions to solve that like, they're going to have to try to get by with lesser option in one or multiple places on the 26 man roster. But like, that just, it strikes me as a case where either like, you know, maybe Colas really isn't doing something he should be doing when it comes to preparation. And this is the only way to get through to him. Or it's a message to Chris gets saying like, this guy isn't going to be able to do it. Um, let's end on a down note. <laughs> so that way there is no optimism. There is no hot last week that changes people's minds. And if the work's not there and he doesn't really believe in the guy. I'm glad you mentioned that as far as like the plan a, because that was obviously the white Sox plan a coming into the season. It was that Oscar Colossus in November ha- in November can handle right field. And clearly he did not do that job. And it raises this question as far as an organization. Why can't the White Sox solve right field? And for those watching on YouTube, a disclaimer, I should already I should have this on the screen just to warn you. 
uh, of the following disturbing images that I have put together. This is a war chart since the 2003 season. So spanning the last 20 years, the amount of wins above replacement for the Chicago White Sox in right field. So it starts with, obviously, Magalhães Ordonez at 4.6 war. And the White Sox, even though they won the World Series with Jermaine Dye in right field, uh, not a lot of value because Jermaine Dye could barely move in those days. So not a lot going defensively, but the bat was good. And there was, I guess you call it mediocre right field play until Adamine shocked everyone and you know put together a 7.2 a war season along well, with the other right Alex fielders Rios season, right? 2011. Yeah. 2011 is Alex Rios. Uh, so you, you have some peaks here. You got all-star rather. Yeah. You got all-star Avi uh, at 4.3 war, but this is where it gets really scary. And I'm going to highlight it in this next image here, this red box since the 2018 season, the combined war for white Sox right fielders is minus 3.7. And this year, it's not just Oscar Colas. It's everyone that's played in right field. They have combined to be worth negative 2.9 war, according to Fangraphs, in right field. Yikes. Yikes, Jim. And it's this graph here that you could just, like, email to Chris Getz. And we probably should send it to Jerry Reinsdorf. Maybe Jerry Reinsdorf knows how to read a graph. I'm, I'm not quite sure. Maybe that's too advanced for him. Mm -hmm. But this is where you have to, you have, someone has to have this conversation. Because to your point, if Oscar Colas is not plan A, and we'll talk about the what the White Sox do have, they want to pretend to have internal options at right field in a moment. If he's not plan A, you got to address this because this is just not a, well, this year problem. No, it has been almost a two decade problem. You have not had consistency at the position and especially the last five years, it has been absolutely brutal. Looking at that one, like decent year, because that, can you go back to the chart real quick? The point 0 0.8 chart was in 2020. So like over, you know, Multiply it by 2.7. That's not a terrible year, but like that's a small sample. One thing. Also, it's like that's one case where like Adam Engel had that really good small sample, uh, 93 plate appearances. Uh -huh. Also, like he did something well. He played a good defensive outfield. He played a good defensive right field. So like that's really what's most damning about this chart is like when it comes to outfield play, it's not like first base where like there's an inherent penalty and it's really hard to transcend like two or three wins above replacement in a good season for a first baseman. Like you can do it. Um, but just when it comes to like Jose Abreu, Jose Abreu was a fine first baseman, like happy to have him. Not oftentimes a three win player or, or above a three win player. And like, everybody's fine with that because he produced in other areas. And there's just that penalty that drags everybody down. Like there is no real such penalty for right field. I mean, there's a little bit, but if you can play defense, well, you'll stand out. And so in that, 2020 season like he had angle getting hot for a little bit in a small sample also playing really nice defense uh caddying for nomar mazara who was bad but also like at least he was a major league player like barely you know with the rangers but like he had some power he did some things well didn't quite show up at the white Sox, but like you know angle could bail him out with what he contributed 
because Mazzara wasn't terrible. Yeah, like, yeah, he was bad, but, you know, maybe like in a better year, like a full year, normal year, he has something closer to redeemable uh, and Angle doesn't need to do as much heavy lifting. But like everything afterwards is just like treating it like an afterthought or like being too clever by like, oh, Adam Eaton. Yeah, we'll get him back. You know, he he's exactly, uh, you know, he did what uh, we wanted him to do the first time he was here. And sure, like we're going to be asking less of him this time around. So surely he can deliver less. Uh, putting first baseman in right field, putting Eloy Jimenez in right field or like th- treating him as an option there because like, uh, they'd never took the position seriously, just throwing all that money and uh, wasting developmental years on guys, just playing them out of position. And it just, that's where it all reflects just the White Sox piss poor planning. And when Jerry Reinsdorf dismisses a deal for Shohei Otani out of hand, the way like he apparently dismissed the idea of Bryce Harper after one meeting at the United mm-hmm. Center, it's just like, it, it's, it's, uh, you know, penny wise and dollar stupid. And like, that's Jerry Reinsdorf. He's, you know, or, or Rick Hahn, you know, the, the flex, you know, maintaining flexibility above anything else is like, yeah, it's like you might save a little bit of money here and you might avoid that 13 year contract or 200, $300 million. But like year after year, you're just throwing so much money down the toilet while Bryce Harper is doing cool things and selling jerseys and packing stands and, and, and drawing ratings and drawing national attention and winning MVPs, making all-star get like all this stuff that like makes money uh, and, and generates interest, not directly tied to numbers against dollars. Like, you know, just Reinsdorf cannot process that Kenny Williams and Rick Hahn being loyal company men are okay with that. And they protect Reinsdorf and just round and round it goes. And uh, at one point I, you know, when it was John Jay and, Norma Mazar and Adam Eaton just, you know, going from like 4.5 to 6 million to, you know, 8 million, like just, you know, creeping up and just all that money they were spending to get nothing. It's just like, yeah, it's, you know, after a certain point, like, yeah, you're, that's one year Bryce Harper you could have paid for without thinking about it. Just on yep. money you've uh, paid for guys you've cut. And there'll be some people say, well, Bryce Harper ended up getting Tommy John. He can't throw a baseball right now. He's still a better first baseman than Andrew Vaughn. So yeah. Uh, you could still use him a DH. I'm just saying like, yeah, could you, going back to that graph, like how does this look? If you sign Bryce Harper, it's not this low, <laughs> you know, I would have to move the Sox machine logo for those that are watching on YouTube. Uh, it, it would skyrocket, but yeah, to your point, Jim, it's just bad business from the Chicago white Sox and not, not being more serious contenders and trying to sign Bryce Harper, uh, is still hurting them to this day. So right field, a huge problem for the White Sox. Oscar Colas doesn't look like he's going to be one to fix that problem in right field as he's been sent down to Charlotte because the manager probably doesn't like his ability on the field. I don't know what Grafal thinks of him personally, but at least on the field, not a solution. So we're here in the last 16 games of the season pretending that Gavin Sheets can play the position. We all know that he cannot play the position. So, Jim, it raises this question. I know you just saw a bunch of prospects down in Birmingham. Internal options for the White Sox at right field. Like, I think Adam Hazley and Clint Frazier are still on the 40-man roster. Yolki Cespedes still exists for the White Sox. But, like, what are we looking here in the short term for internal options for the White Sox at right field if Oscar Colas is not the guy? 
Not a whole lot. I mean, that's why Coloss was so important and so like crucial to getting it right because like there is just not much going on. I mean, like, you know, you've mentioned Brian Ramos going to the outfield, which like theoretically could do like Wilfred Veris is nice. You know, he's having like a nice season for a 20 year old about to turn 21, I think. And like having a good season, but also like still a big project offensively and defensively. So he's not somebody who can help in 2024, like maybe 2025 at the earliest when it comes to like a full, um, just like a, a complete player and somebody who doesn't have to be babysat on, you know, one or both sides of the ball. Like that's what you're looking at is maybe like second half of 2025 for somebody like Varus. So yeah, it's pretty, pretty bad. And that's why like Colossus was so huge and, yeah, I was a believer in Colas too. Maybe not like rookie of the year votes, but just, you know, given that he had an ability to stay on the ball from, from uh, you know, facing left-handed pitching in the minors, like that's what gave me the most optimism is like, oh, he's not like a platoon bat. He's somebody who can play every day. He might have some really cold stretches because of his aggression that, you know, where he swings himself into knots. But like, ultimately, I think he should be able to choke up on the bat and, and, refocus the way he did in double a AA and triple a and and you know be able to steer himself out of it in time i'm just really you know like shocked and dismayed by how everything seemed too much for him we have seen instances in which white Sox players have terrible years and then bounce back we've seen it from tim anderson we've seen it from lucas giolito in a lighter version it is impressive and just how long adam engel stuck around in the major leagues despite not being very good offensively to your point some players in the white Sox over the years that we have been podcasting over the last 10 years have found a way to be effective and worthwhile to merit a spot of the major league roster whether it's their bat or it is their glove or they could run with oscar colas i think it's premature to bury him and say it's over as him being the starting right fielder for the White Sox. But to your point, if the internal options are terrible for the White Sox and you got a manager who's not necessarily crazy about him and you send him down in September of all months of a team that's going to lose 90 plus games this year, maybe more than 100 games this year. Like, I think the writing's on the wall that the White Sox just don't think highly of Oscar Colas, or at least this new administration doesn't think highly of Oscar Colas. So it raises the question of, like, what are we doing here? Like, I know there's just a couple more weeks left to go in the season, but you got all of October to regroup, watch the postseason happen, and then after the World Series, 10 days after that, you got some tough decisions to make with Tim Anderson and Liam Hendricks, and then the market's open. How are you going to fix this position? Because you need a like me medium term, you need a, like a three to four year solution if you're not crazy about the internal options the White Sox have, Jim. Yeah, I'm looking at the free agent list right now and not a whole lot. I mean, like there are decent options like, you know, Randall Gritchick or something like that, like somebody who professional player can produce like 20 homer guy i believe um yeah, I, be like I picked i picked player. three out yeah so the three that i picked were tiosca hernandez he'll be a free agent after this season hunter renfro will be a free agent and jason hayward will be a free agent now all these guys are in their 30s hernandez will turn 31 next year renfro 32 
and Hayward, 34 years old. They all do something well. Mm-hmm. I don't know. This is terrible. This is so sad to say. I, I wonder if Teoscar Hernandez is just going to be too rich for the White Sox spending habits. Well, I think like it, you know, to me, I'm kind of setting my sights more for like if I'm building a team and I'm not giving up on 2024, but also like not wanting to overinvest in 2024 at the sake of for the sake of 2025, like I'm perfectly fine with stop gaps all over the place. Like, you know, if, if the market is deep on 30 year old outfielders or outfielders in their 30s who have been decent or up and down, like just, you know. Look, size up some guys, uh, compare them, you know, run your, you know, whatever analytics department the White Sox have, like do your best due diligence, run up by your scouts, see like who can might be flippable at the deadline next year. That's kind of how I look at it is like one year, uh, see if they produce enough to compensate for a White Sox team that maybe gets like a Yuan Moncada renaissance and an Eloy Jimenez, you know, if he's still around, uh, you know, if his game coalesces and such, and you get like the perfect breaks from your in your internal talents, like bring in a couple of guys who might be able to be okay. Uh, but obviously you're not going to be counting on the White Sox core coming together because it hasn't come together for like three years in a row. So, you know, that's why I think like I'm looking more at the, like Jason Hayward would be fine as like a one year guy who does something well, who is a character guy who has left-handed bats, which always helps the white Sox. Like, yeah, I get that one. Um, that one makes a lot of sense. Uh, but like trying to win a bidding war for somebody who need, you know, is going to get like three or four years. And like, in your like, kind of like Yasmani Grandal, like the white Sox, you know, they gave him a four year contract and like, obviously for a catcher, who's going to be like 35 at the end of the contract. Like you can't count that fourth year being good, but because the white Sox are so cheap or so like small minded when it comes to spending, like, and and can't spend past mistakes or spend past inefficiency. Like Mm -hmm. they need all four years to count. Like then this year is definitely not like the time to invest in a Tiasco Hernandez who might have that same problem of like being, replacement level by the time he's 34 35 because as we've seen from jerry reinsdorf like he doesn't care or like he doesn't get it he doesn't get aging curves he doesn't get um just you know whether it's uh you know yasmani grandal whether it's like adam laroche when but before he retired like giving laroche a tier contract his first year is a disaster and like well i guess we had to stick with adam laroche for year two and then, like, sure enough, like, he ends up retiring and the White Sox, you know, missed out on that market uh, because they didn't want to spend. But, like, that's how Reinsdorf operates. Like, he gives a big contract. Like, you're stuck with that big contract, seeing it through all the way, unless it's, like, Jeff Kepinger money. So mm-hmm. that's why, like, you know, I guess Larry Garcia would be the new Jeff Kepinger in that regard. But, yeah, I just – if 2024 is going to be not good – um, and, and it's going to be about waiting for the prospects to see which ones emerge by the end of 2024 and 2025. Then I'm more or less being like a Jason Hayward guy, just more or less waiting at the markets. And I'm more or less fine with that. Like last year or the you know, previous two, three years were the time to attack right field. And because they didn't like trying to do it now would be too late. Yeah, I. I see your point, Jim. I just see the White Sox doing the opposite. <laughs> I'd be like, great point, Jim. We're not going to do that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> gonna... We don't have a year to waste. <laughs> we don't have a year to waste. So let's get the best possible right fielder. But we're, we're talking about 
not like high quality right fielders here that are available. I mean, we're trying to talk ourselves into Teoscar Hernandez, who's a two war outfielder, which again, looking at the graph of what the White Sox are getting in right field the last five years would be like a godsend for them. Uh, as he said, 25 homers, 87 RBIs this season for the Seattle Mariners in 144 games. Uh, I don't know what magic the Dodgers are using on Jason Hayward, but in 110 games, he's been worth 2.2 wins above replacement, according to fan graphs. And he's got a 125 weighted runs created plus. I mean, even though he said 14 homers to 38 RBIs, that's not a high counting number total. Hayward this year's batting 269, 348 with a 481 slugging percentage. Like the White Sox need that kind of guy. But again, Hayward turns 34 next year. Is the aging curve going to impact Jason Hayward if he went from the Dodgers to the White Sox? Does he go back to his Cubs form, which was not a very good player at all? So again, this general idea, like can the White Sox contend in 2024? And we're really putting the roster under the microscope and looking at right field at this moment. And if Oscar Colossus plan a failed, you don't have any viable backup options internally. And there's nobody that's like crazy good that could help fix the position over the next five to 10 years. Like you don't have another Bryce Harper available in right field. Like this two decade problem just seems like it's going to continue to be a problem for the White Sox for what the next three to five years, unless they draft an outfielder that they develop where they sign an international prospect. That's an outfielder that they develop to take care of this position. It's just like the lack of consistency in this position has been maddening. And I don't understand why they've never been more serious about addressing this position at all. I think it's just, it must've been some kind of Han quirk uh, of just thinking like, yeah, if we hit enough, it doesn't matter. Like Jermaine Dyer, something like that, as you mentioned in 05 through 08, like, or, or, you know, kind of that, that era mm -hmm. of Jermaine Dye being like, yeah, if you hit 30 homers, it doesn't matter if you run in quicksand, you'll be fine. And the White Sox just can't get to 30 homers. They can't get to 20 homers from right field. They can't sometimes get the 15 homers. And it just, uh, you know, the, the cycle repeats. The thing about Jason Hayward, I looked it up, is like what the Dodgers do is like the Dodgers tend to put guys in positions to succeed. And sure enough, Hayward has 20 plate appearances against left-handed pitching this year. And he's played, uh, he's made 10, no, 12 total starts in center field uh, and has only completed 10 of those games. So basically he's played right field and he faces right-handed pitching. He is not asked to do anything he can't do. And that's why he's good. Whereas the White Sox, like if Jason Hayward showed up as soon as like, you know, Luis Robert, like sprains a thumb, like you're our everyday center fielder. Yeah, yep. We need your leadership against left-handed pitching and like the, the numbers tank and uh, the White Sox ruin what they have. Yeah. I was going to ask if uh, Pedro Grafal could handle Jason Hayward or manage him the same way that Dave Roberts does in Los Angeles, but I didn't want to make myself laugh. So I'll hold that question to myself, Jim, and just giggle. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so Again, that was just on my mind with the White Sox devoting Oscar Colas. Like it's a, there's an individual aspect to it. He's not had a very good season. It does make sense that if you don't think he's a major leaguer, send him back to AAA. But 
you got a much larger issue, a larger issue that has been lingering for decades for the Chicago White Sox. That's on Chris Getz's plate, and he's got to figure it out. He's got to figure out what to do in right field because if it's not Oscar Colas, then you got to find someone who it is, and it's not Gavin Sheets. We could stop with this experiment. He gets to play in right field for the final 16 games, Jim, but he cannot be the answer in 2024. Just can't. <laughs> uh, just uh, it's, you know, he's somebody, he's a testament to being around and being healthy and like, can you play right field? Yeah, I'm healthy enough. Like, yeah, I can, my legs are working. I can run as hard as I possibly can. Mm-hmm. Like that seems to be like Danny Mendick was that guy for a while. Like another guy along the same lines is like, Hey, can you wear a glove and run as hard as you can? Like, yep. All right. You're our guy. And like, that's all it takes sometimes because the White Sox are so thin or because they have so many guys who are always half hurt that uh, somebody like Sheets, who just is basically invincible and, you know, is basically (laughs) bulletproof. Like he's somebody who can just get a ton of plate appearances just by always being like 100%. Wow, Gavin Sheet sounds like a superhero. Does he have any other superpowers? Can he help offensively? He can take a punch. That's a nope. superpower. He can take pain. <laughs> That's a superpower. All right, great. That's awesome. Thank you. Uh, yeah, right field. Well, I, I'm looking forward to what everybody else's thoughts are on this topic on SoxMachine.com with the offseason plan project. But again, this came to my mind when the White Sox devoted Oscar Colas that right field has been absolutely brutal for the White Sox. We're going to talk about a very surprising interview from an ex-White Sox employee next after a quick word from our sponsor. The Biggest Acts are visiting Chicago this summer on top of all the baseball games and other great concerts, theater shows too. It can be quite the chore and headache trying to secure tickets to all of these shows and events. Buying tickets shouldn't be stressful. Use game time to purchase your tickets. Game Time is the fast and easy way to buy tickets for sports, music, comedy, theater near you. They've got killer deals on last-minute tickets, and their best price guarantee helps eliminate stressing over tickets. If you find tickets in the same section or even row for less, Game Time will credit you 110% of the difference. That's why Game Time is the fastest-growing ticketing app in the country. Download the Game Time app, create your account, and get $20 off your first purchase using our promo code SOXMACHINE. Terms and conditions apply. Again, create an account and use our promo code SOXMACHINE for $20 off your first ticket purchase. Game time. Last-minute tickets, lowest prices, guaranteed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. 
That's indeed.com slash blue wire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And welcome back to Sox Machine Live. A very, 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 very surprising interview, Jim, from The mm-hmm. Athletic. Former international scouting director David Wilder, who went to prison because of skimming bonuses from Latin American players, spoke and did an interview with The Athletic. And Jim, that's the most shocking thing. Not anything that he had to say, Wilder had to say in the interview. The fact Mm -hmm. that he did an interview, like he was the last guy I was expecting to talk about his time with the Chicago White Sox. But here he is speaking. Did you learn anything valuable from the interview? Uh, I learned that Dave Wilder is like not great at reflecting contrition or any kind of, um, you know, humility when it comes to the, uh, the skimming scandal, like, you know, it didn't really seem to understand the gravity of it and mail fraud and very much played the victim, even though like he did defraud the white Sox of money. And, you know, he's like, I didn't steal money from kids. I stole money from their trainers. And like, yeah, you know, it's kind of the same thing. Isn't it? like, um, <laughs> I, I just wish that Jim Bowden was the one talking to him. So it could be like, as Jim Bowden uh, who writes for the athletic was he resigned from the uh, nationals because they had their own skimming scandal and he denied um, uh, association with it or knowledge of it. But just, it'd be funny if like Bowden was talking to him and being like just two old pros chopping it up about ripping off Latin American teenagers. Like here's so what you should have done. Dave Wilder. Like that would, I would have enjoyed that conversation, but yeah, I mean, like, I did learn. Well, the funny thing is, uh, and, and this was brought up in uh, in the comments in the post I wrote, saying, like, the White Sox tried to, um, and, and obviously they have grounds to smear Wilder and saying, like, uh, that, you know, what he says shouldn't matter. And the quote from the spokesman was, we do not feel convicted felons more than 15-year-old opinions, as well as his excuses for illegal activities victimizing the team and innocent Latin American players and families, merit a platform or a response. And the thing is, like, Wilder worked with Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams. Like, if the White Sox were more proactive with, like, solving front office issues and like looking for better options to lead their team. Like, yes, it would be irrelevant, but because the White Sox hung on to Kenny Williams and Rick Hahn six to seven years too long, like they invited this, like they invite uh, this old, these old manners to be brought up because they are relevant. They, they are perfectly relevant to what the White Sox have done, especially like when Wilder's talking about Jerry Reinsdorf and like, how the White Sox have a bad culture because Reinsdorf has to be involved with everything, even though he doesn't understand anything. It's like, yeah, that makes sense. When when Jerry Reinsdorf is saying Chris Getz is the only one who's ever done his job well, uh, yeah, when Jerry when Jerry Reinsdorf promoted Kenny Williams to general manager from that same position, and like apparently Kenny didn't do his job right, but still he promoted uh, Kenny to general manager, even though he sucked apparently as a player development guy. Like, this is uh, you know, there's that arrogance on display and the smarter than thou uh, that Wilder's talking about on display. So like, yeah, I don't trust Wilder's opinion on, you know, his role or like 
you know, what he did or he invoked like just, you know, he, he made some smears against the White Sox when it came to how they regarded uh, black front office members and Latin front office members and such. And like, I, I don't know about that just because like he was playing the victim in so many other ways that I don't really know. And I'm not going to lend him the benefit of the doubt. I'm not going to say he's wrong. I'm not going to believe he's right either. I'm just going to set it aside and see if anything else corroborates it down the road. But like everything he said about Reinsdorf's character and just how he runs the team and how Kenny Williams and Rick Hahn operated and behaved because of that. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. And so like, it is like a strange late hit that popped up. Like, and one thing I was reminded of was like Jesse Rogers with the Keenan Middleton story, like that story exploded and he ran with it he wasn't planning on running with it. He was more or less doing a story on like, he was planning on doing something bigger, I think involving the white Sox or about the white Sox or what, you know, what things went wrong. But like Middleton just opened up open fire on the white Sox. Like, well, I guess I got to run with this. I wasn't planning on like corroborating or, or, or like finding second sources for all of his claims, but like, this is going to be a story in and of itself. So I'm going to ditch what I'm working on and, mm. and just run with this Middleton story. Like, I'm wondering if like, Rich Roley, who is the reporter for the athletic was like talking to Wilder about something else. And like, this came up to run with in and of itself. And oh. if so, like what's she working on? <laughs> you did raise a question right in your column on socksmachine.com. Who's next <laughs> to speak for the Chicago white Sox and to talk about the dysfunction. So we've heard from Keenan Middleton, we had Scott Carroll on our show. You talked mm -hmm. about it and he shared his experience dealing with Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams and how poor that they were with communication with the players in the clubhouse. Uh, Lance Lynn visually confirmed or did not deny that Keenan Middleton was wrong with his comments. Now we get Dave Wilder speaking. <laughs> like any, who, who's next, Jim? Who is next to, to blow open the doors and demonstrate and share the full dysfunction of the Chicago White Sox. Yeah, I love this uh, comment from Tim saying, this is kind of like when the always play for second place quote attributed to Reinsdorf came from a guy who's a bit of a scumbag in his own rights. But then like Reinsdorf, that was David Sampson, who like I was not inclined to make anything of that because David Sampson is a consider the source guy as, as somebody who uh, operated uh, in very shady and, you know, um, you know, he was basically a laughing stock among the, ownership and you know president of baseball operations class but then like reinsdorf goes and just says it himself at a conference saying like yeah you know fourth place is sometimes okay it's about playing in september is all that matters and the white Sox can't even do that but just like the white Sox always have a way of validating anything somebody says that you know you wouldn't be inclined to believe so that's why like when it comes to like the claims wilder made about like latin and black employees and such like i'm not disagreeing or like you know writing them off i'm just you know i i don't trust them enough to to believe it but also like wouldn't shock me if down the road uh some allegations come up that like are from a more credible source and go like yeah, i guess dave wilder is right you know dallas keichel kind of was a similar guy about mm. talking about clicks in the clubhouse and yeah the white Sox kind of uh said like you know or liam hendrix uh, made some you know allusions to who the source was and 
kind of pointed to Keuchel without saying his name. And then like, sure enough, the White Sox have clicks and a clubhouse that doesn't get along and a work ethic problem and they need an authoritarian figure. And Hendricks is the one saying that. So yeah, it's just, uh, they have a way of, you know, trying to smear witnesses, same thing with Keenan Middleton, for that matter. Like Rick Hahn was talking about like how Keenan Middleton has his own misconduct issues. And then sure enough, Hahn gets fired like two weeks later. So like Middleton got the last laugh there. But yeah, they they can't do it. And like when it comes to like who might be next, like I'm curious, like if this does snowball, you know, if there is like a bigger story behind, you know, why she was talking to Wilder in the first place, for instance. Like, there's going to be a whole lot of self-preservation instincts going on. Like, Rick Hahn, if he wants another job, does he speak? Right. Or if he can't get another job in baseball that he wants, does he speak? Yasmani Grandal, like, if he's at the end of the line, does he speak? Uh, given as somebody who is just kind of, like, not terribly concerned with making the best impression on people based on what the word was at previous stops. Like, does he open up? Uh, does Lance Lynn, uh, with his next deal secured, start talking more and making fun of like? A whole bunch of people can. I think Kenny might be too old for it, but maybe not because he does seem petty enough to maybe get back and <laughs> you roll up his sleeves and throw elbows. Uh, but maybe if Jerry fired him, maybe that's enough of a, uh, you know, uh, a blow to his ego to not feel like he needs to defend uh, Ryan Sorf ev at every turn. But like gets, you know, when it was that three person units, uh, Ryan Sorf, Han and Williams, like they were perfectly arranged to just deflect blame from each other. Like, well, Rick Hahn, you know, his moves might not be bad because Kenny Williams is getting in the way. Well, Kenny Williams is getting in the way, but maybe, you know, he's trying to do his best because he has to appeal to Jerry. Jerry ruins everything. So you can't blame Kenny and Rick. Like just, you know, they were great at like just uh, deflecting bullets, you know, at each other. And so like, it was never really satisfying to like, assail one person like people would say like yeah you're you know the han bots for instance like you're too hard on han and just like i don't care who you know like if i say han it's williams like great it's you know they both suck or it's like the whole <laughs> you know the whole troika so like I, you know say a name whatever you want whoever's to blame it doesn't matter just you know fire away and don't get stuck on infighting about like who deserves what portion of the blame they're all terrible and they all have a hand and how terrible they are so like but there was like a, a feeling of permanence there that i think led some res resignation to like well this is never gonna get fixed so we may as well just you know kind of go about our jobs you know ask our questions we need to ask and just realize nothing's going to change. And so like when Wilder said that this is the first time he's ever talked to since getting out of prison in 2015, it's like, huh, you know, that's why hasn't anybody talked to him? And like, well, I guess if nobody thinks anything's ever going to change and maybe never just circle back to that, Marco Patty's doing a good enough job, not getting into trouble. Like you never think of Wilder really. Mm -hmm. So like, I guess it never comes back. But uh, now that Getz is there, and who knows what kind of loyalty Getz has to Reinsdorf. I'm sure he's great at saying what Reinsdorf wants to hear, but like he hasn't been there that long. He doesn't owe a World Series or a career highlight to Reinsdorf. Griffol is, you know, maybe he, like Reinsdorf likes him, but he's not like entrenched in White Sox culture. Like I think it might be an opportunity for like some cracks in what had been like a pretty impermeable fortress of silence and um, just reverence towards Reinsdorf, I think you can see some cracks in there and I'm really looking forward to it. Like I'm really hoping it gets <laughs> ugly and gets petty because like there's gotta be a whole lot of skeletons in closets that just uh, need to be addressed somehow or, 
are going to be brought up because somebody else gets blamed for something. Mm-hmm. And so you're like, well, I wasn't, bl- I wasn't responsible for that. You were responsible and you were responsible for this too. And then just, uh, you know, you get, somebody gets thrown through the bar window and just it, it, a melee ensues. So I'm really hoping for that one for, uh, the traffic because <laughs> our best traffic this year has come when the white Sox have thoroughly embarrassed themselves, but also just, you know, I, I think, you know, the, the, the problem with like the Tony La Russa hiring and firing or not the firing, but just the resignation or the stepping down is like, there was never a full accounting for how it happened, why it happened, who was on what side, who was happy about it, what the ramifications were. And so like, they just got to pretend it was like, Oh, that was weird. Here's Pedro Grafal. And then all the problems from the La Russa experience uh, manifest itself and undermine whatever Grafal is trying to do. And now it's a disaster. And like, I think really like sunlight is, the best disinfectant, you know, as the saying goes, like, I think the White Sox, they do need to be opened up at some point to be like, what the hell are you guys doing here? And yeah, who's going to be the person to actually undo all of this? Where is all of the mess that can possibly undermine what's going to happen? And as long as Ryan surfs there, you can't count on it. But if everything gets really like fractured beneath him, maybe that's the only possible way that, you know, anything gets to him. How about the man who rarely speaks, Harold Baines, the tell-all <laughs> interview from Harold Baines? <laughs> yeah, that would, that would pierce that would pierce Jerry Reinsdorf's heart. Like that would hurt him. Personally. Would he unretire the number? <laughs> I'm bringing back Ole Garcia. You're wearing number three. <laughs> oh, I could see Rick Hahn speaking. That would be. That would be an interesting interview. I think he would try very hard to paint himself in a light that I was really handcuffed. I had all these great ideas, but I could not implement them mm-hmm. because of the current structure. And I could see that sparking a lot of debate, especially on social media or even in the comments section at Sox Machine. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe everyone is just like you, Jim. It's like, it doesn't matter, Rick. You were part of this organization for two decades. You could have left at any time if you didn't like. You got to put your kids through their entire school, like, yep. lives in one place while working as a general manager in baseball. Like, how Rare. lucky are you? Like, that's yes. really, that, that's what he was, that's kind of what he was uh, playing for was like stability. So like he got what he wanted and, you know, success is more or less secondary when you're in an organization that doesn't care to finish first. Well, we got 16 games left to go in this season. So if somebody wants to talk to you, give us conversation and talking points away from the field, that'd be fantastic. Uh, but that will do it for this episode of Sox Machine Live. Thank you guys so much, especially for those that watched on the YouTube stream at youtube.com slash Machine. If this is the first time that you are watching a video on our YouTube channel, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at Sox Machine. I'm at SoxMachine underscore Josh. And we're also at those handles for other social media outlets as well, including Instagram, Facebook, and Threads. And for Sox Machine Live, as far as the videos, we always take the audio file and upload it into our podcast feed, which you can subscribe to the Sox Machine Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts such as Spotify and Apple Music. If you enjoy our show and you want to help out Sox Machine, you can do so at patreon.com slash Machine, where our Patreon supporters get exclusive content and ad-free versions of both the podcast and website. 
Monthly plans start at $2, or you could save with an annual subscription. Again, sign up at patreon.com slash SoxMachine. SoxMachine Live is a production of SoxMachine.com. You're on for all things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for watching and listening.